Hello, my name is Curtis Merriweather Jr. You are listening to the Business Theologist Podcast. This podcast is for new and seasoned business professionals looking to uncover knowledge gems. This podcast is unlike other business podcasts because we endeavor to create a synergistic relationship between business, management, scholarship, and theology. In addition to being an executive leader, I am also a doctoral candidate. The insights shared on this podcast will give you an edge over the competition. Whether you're an entrepreneur, entrepreneur, or executive leader, or someone looking to change careers, I invite you to travel along this learning journey with me. Buckle up and let's get ready for the ride. Let's go. Welcome to the Business Theologist Podcast. Hey guys, hope you're having a great day today. Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedules to listen to the podcast today. If you have not already, if you just stumbled across this podcast for the very first time, I'd like you to take a brief minute, subscribe, Listen to the podcast in its entirety, full duration, and leave us a comment. This helps us get in the algorithm so other people just like you can find our content. Well, hope you have had a great weekend. Um, Hope everything is going well in your life today. And uh, before I forget, just want to take some time in advance to Wish you a happy holiday season. Um, I'm recording this podcast on Monday, the 23rd. So uh, we're just getting ready to go into the holiday, the Thanksgiving season this week. So I hope you guys have, um, you know, socially distancing and taking the necessary COVID-19 precautions. But I hope that you get an opportunity to spend some time with friends, family, and loved ones. Okay, I wanted to make sure we address that um, before we get into our topic today. So today's podcast is going to be a little different from other podcasts that uh, I've recorded in the past and podcasts that you will probably hear in the future for this particular podcast. So what I endeavor to do today is to answer some questions regarding why I chose to pursue a PhD as an executive. Um, As you may remember from previous podcasts, I did pursue and am pursuing an executive PhD. Um, I'm actually taking classes currently at Case Western Reserve University in uh, Cleveland, Ohio. So I get questions often about the program. So what I want to do today was just take some time to answer a few questions for those who have, you know, DM me, sent me LinkedIn messages, uh, Instagram um, DMs. You know, many of you guys have contacted me from uh, all over the country and some of you guys even worldwide to ask me questions regarding my program and kind of why did I decide to pursue this, excuse me. So what I endeavor to do today is to answer some of those questions Um, for some of you guys that may be considering or just want to know why I did it. So we're going to jump right into our questions. Um, First question I have received is, why would an executive pursue a PhD or a doctorate? Now, I break this question out um, and I put it, I reworded it this way because I want to take a second before I answer this question to explain the difference. There is a difference between a PhD and a doctorate. So what do I mean? Let me give some context. PhD is the more traditional doctorate, scholarly doctorate, not medical doctors, not JDs. It is the more traditional um, doctorate, and it's a doctor of philosophy. Now, the doctor of philosophy is a more of a research-based doctorate. It's designed for scholarship, Um, and research. Now your doctorate 
whether that's a, a, let's talk about it from a business context. So you can get a PhD in business. You can get a PhD in management. I'm actually pursuing a PhD in management with an emphasis in designing sustainable systems. That's the program that I'm in at Case Western, as I mentioned earlier. And you can get a doctorate. A doctorate is still, you're still called a doctor, whether you do a PhD or whether you do a doctorate degree. So, for example, a DBA, a Doctor of Business Administrations, or an EDD, which is basically a Doctor of Education. Those are doctorates, um, and they're designed to be more practitioner-focused, more practical. Um, you can do with a PhD, which you can do with a, let's call it a doctorate, and I'm using that nomenclature just to try to differentiate. Um, so, But a, a, a doctorate may not be able to do the role of a PhD. One is more scholarly, which is the PhD. These are your, typically your professors in universities, um, they're, um, what they call postdoctorates. These are folks who've gotten their PhD and now probably doing independent, um, research either for a university or for a business or a think tank, like a Aspen Institute or a Hoover Institution, or, um, maybe you might even be at, in the, in the, um, NIH, um, studying whatever your PhD is in. And then a doctorate is considered more practical. These are the folks who have, learned some research methods, but they chose to apply their uh, higher education in a more practical um, format. So just some, just a little context. And if you need more clarity, please shoot me a, uh, an email or drop me a note via LinkedIn or Instagram or any of my social media handles that you can find in the show notes. So now that I kind of place some context, I, wanna, I want to address the question, why would an executive pursue a PhD or doctorate? Well, the PhDs, you have traditional PhDs and you have executive PhDs. A traditional PhD is like an extension of a graduate program. You know, you can get a master's and you can go straight into a PhD. These are typically younger professionals, um, typically mid-20s, early 30s. And then you have executive PhDs, which is what I'm in. An executive PhD is typically tailored toward your executives in a said industry or a said career field. Um, what you're seeing a lot of today is a lot of executive uh, doctorates in management or business. That's what you're primarily seeing in, in the executive world. Um, you also see a lot of uh, executive-like EDD programs. Those programs are typically uh, designed for teachers who want a doctorate, and it's normally designed to work around your schedule. So the big difference between a traditional PhD and an executive doctorate, not PhD, an executive doctorate and a traditional doctorate um, program is the flexibility. So when you're in a traditional program, most of your major universities have a traditional PhD. Harvard is a great example. Um, it is residency-based, full-time. You're taking classes every week, very much with, like you would in a undergraduate or a graduate program um, early on in your academic career. An executive doctorate is designed to be more flexible, has executives in mind. The programs are still very rigorous, depending on what school you go to. They're still very rigorous. Um, they're going to be very high on methodology. Um, I'm throwing out acronyms and I need to explain them. Uh, methods is basically how you're going to conduct your research, whether that's going to be a qualitative um, research pursuit, qualitative meaning um, abductive reasoning. Um, basically, you're, you're doing theory, you're creating theory, you're doing theory generation. Um, you're coming up with a new novel way based on, you know, information you collected via ethnographic studies. And man, I feel like I'm, I'm probably going to create more questions than I answer. But you have ethnographies, you have um, focus groups, you have interviews. Those are three qualitative research methods. Then you have quantitative. Typically, these come about through statistics. You're gathering data, you're doing some type of statistical analysis. Now, you're not going to become a statistical expert in a PhD program, but they're going to teach you how to, uh, you know, structure questions, show you how to measure the data, clean the data, um, and basically 
format the data in such a way where you can actually make decisions from it. And, you know, we're going to probably run regression tests. It's a lot of things you're going to potentially do with that data to derive information from it. Qualitative uh, research is typically used to test a theory. So uh, in qualitative, you are generating a theory um, and, and you're doing theory building. It's called, it's called inductive. And in quantitative, it's considered deductive, and you're testing theory. So in theory, you know, the qualitative, I create theory, and deductive, I test theory. So qualitative is, is kind of call it leg one. Quantitative is leg two. Um, then you can get into what they call mixed method studies, which is where you combine qualitative and quantitative, inductive and deductive, theory building and theory testing. All that just said all means the same thing. Um, in one study. Um, so every time I say something, I feel like I have to give context. So I hope this is not uh, overwhelming. Designed to try to keep this simple, but there are some things that you kind of just need to understand. So why would an executive pursue a PhD? Again, more than likely, you're going to be more seasoned in your career. An executive would want to probably look at an executive PhD or a practical program designed to bend around your full-time schedule. Most of your executive PhD programs recognize that you have a day job. And so they normally have less residency requirements. When I say residency, I mean how many times you have to show up on campus. I'm actually in a residency-based program. I personally did not want to be in online programs. I personal opinion, I think online school is harder. Uh, I think you have to work harder. I still am kind of old school. I'm not that old, but I'm old school and that I enjoy sitting in the classroom. I enjoy interacting with my peers. I enjoy the, the, the cohort based experience. Cohort just means group. I enjoy the cohort based experience of having a set group of peers that we progress through a program with together. My preferred learning style. And I'll talk about that more in a, in a, in a follow-up question. Number two, what's the difference between a PhD and a doctorate? I kind of talked about that earlier. The PhD is more scholarly. The doctorate is more practical. Can you get a PhD and still do practical work? Yes. I'm actually going to be an example of that. I'm planning on pursuing a PhD. I have no desire today to be a full-time instructor. Now, I do desire to teach on a limited basis, more of an adjunct or part-time professor, like one class a year. And the only reasons for that is I would like to teach um, potentially MBAs, executive MBAs. And I believe that the executive MBA, MBA programs are a, rich, a more richer experience and you're learning from your, from your class. I have no desire to teach undergrads. I'm saying that today, that may change. I have no desire to teach undergrads, but the way it works is if you want to teach in a, undergrad program some schools I can't say most some schools will allow you to do that with the master so we're talking primarily in the business context so an MBA would let you teach undergrads and there's plenty of examples out there check the school that you want to teach at and look at the criteria so an MBA or a master's would typically let you teach undergrads if you want to teach master's or doctoral students you have to have a terminal degree. A doctorate is considered a terminal degree. We can split, we can split hairs and say, well, a terminal degree is a DBA. Uh, others would say that a true terminal degree is a PhD. It really matters the school that you're trying to teach at what their definition is. Some schools will let you teach at the graduate level and doctoral level with the DBA, but most require a PhD. I have seen some exceptions, but that's really a school decision. I don't know if it has anything to do with the accreditation board. I don't have the answer to that, but a doctoral program lets you teach masters and graduate with graduate students and you can teach undergrads with a master's degree if that school will allow you. PhDs, terminal degrees, doctorates can teach undergrads and graduate. So hope that kind of quantified that. Why did I pursue a doctorate? So here's the $100,000 question. I chose to pursue a doctorate because I wanted to pivot. Um, as you guys know, 
I am an executive leader today. I'm in the defense and aerospace industry, um, primarily doing government contracting for DOD and the intelligence community um, with direct reports and such. Um, but I really looked at pursuing a doctorate for a few reasons. So I'm going to try to make this answer brief. <laughs> um, you know, I can get long-winded. So I want to try to try to make this answer brief. I pursued a doctorate because we do a lot of services today, meaning we bid on contracts, and the contracts are typically five-year engagements with a base and maybe four options, or sometimes four-year engagements, a base and three options. But a potential contract duration of three to five years on average. There are some one-offs, one-year engagements, but typically long-term engagements. And one of the things I started noticing was my own personal, this is my own personal experience, is that the service space can get very crowded. Whether you're selling IT services, information technology, whether you're selling logistics, cyber, Intel, language, it's very competitive. And so to give a synopsized answer, I saw research being a way to bring new product into the space to be able to take my understanding of the research process and start doing applied research, taking advantage of um, research generation opportunities. What do I mean by that? I'm talking about research generation opportunities. I'm talking about the SIBRs. Um, so in the federal space, they have something called the SBIRs, the Small Business Innovation Research Opportunities. These are typically like contracts, um, but they're research-based contracts. Then you have grants. Um, you see grants probably primarily like the National Science Foundation does grants. Um, and typically the way these works is, in the cyberspace, primarily DOD, DOD will tell you, and other agencies, but I use DOD because I'm, I'm more familiar with that world. In the DOD world, let's just say you want to do work for the Army. The Army will have a list of things that they need. And these are typically things that require research. And you will go and you'll put together your research proposal and or how you're going to attack their specific problem. And if you are digging the winner, they will basically create a contract and you'll start working toward that solution. And I'm oversimplifying just to try to provide context in the grant space, like an NSF or a national NSF. I apologize for acronyms. Y'all the national science foundation or the NIH, the national institutes of health. These are just two examples. There are tons of agencies in the federal space that do these. Uh, those are typically grants. And it's more open-ended in terms of you telling, I'll use, I'll use NIH. Let's say there's a, there's a portion of NIH that does cancer research. If you have a solution for cancer, you tell the NIH, hey, here's my innovation. You write up a research proposal, and if they like it, you can get a phase one, which typically is around $250,000 there about maybe 275 but around 250,000 for a phase 1. A phase 2 will be around about 1.4 million there about and in a phase 3 typically uh, leads you to a sole source contract potentially. And I won't get into how to actually do that, but that's that was one of the reasons why I chose it. We I got invited to go to Rutgers in 2018, 18, and we had some technology that we we're working to develop, um, and we wanted to take advantage of, of grant money to maintain our equity stake in the research we were developing. So we wanted to take advantage of grant opportunities and potentially get a $250,000 cash infusion to commercialize, that's the word they use, to commercialize our technology. Uh, so I went through the research process. I had no idea what I was really doing at this time. Just, I got invited to a seminar at Rutgers. Rutgers kind of explained the commercialization process. I, from a conceptual level, I understood what was required. Um, but when it came time to writing the proposal, it wasn't a federal 
proposal submission. Very, very different in how you communicate that. What you were actually putting together was a research proposal. So I remember we hired a PhD who came in and she did a great job. We didn't, we ended up not getting the work by the way, but we didn't get the grant opportunity. Um, but she was asking questions that I had never heard of before. She's about like research design. So when we do federal proposals or commercial proposals of any kind, they don't ask you questions like, um, What's your research method? What's your research design? What's your sample? So from a understanding of what she was asking perspective, in terms of what was a sample, I knew what that was. Um, in terms of my research method, other than hearing qual and quant and in undergrad, through a statistics course, I, I conceptually understood what she was saying, but I didn't understand how to apply what she was saying. So what I honestly believe happened is that we ran into a communication challenge. She was talking another language, which I knew nothing about. You know, she was a, a PhD in biology. Cause again, we was doing, we're doing, we were doing and currently still doing research in the medical space. Uh, and I won't get into some of the proprietary things that we're working on, but she knew she was talking in a different language that I didn't understand. And I think we were talking at one another. It wasn't a, an aggressive or hostile relationship, nothing like that. But I don't think we were communicating effectively. But, you know, if I was able to go back and kind of move back the hands of time, go back two years, about two years ago, and if I was able to engage that same um, biology doctor today we have a different conversation because now I have context for what a research design means and how to properly set up a sample and how it should be collecting that data, how to, you know, do a constructive grounded research approach. If we're talking about constructivist grounded theory or grounded theory, I had no, and you're hearing me today, you're probably like, I have no idea what Curtis is talking about. That's what it felt like when I engaged this, this, this uh, scholar, who had experience doing technology commercialization in the research world, that's how I felt. She was using terms that I had no reference for. And even when she would explain it, I, it was clearer, but it wasn't clear enough for me to grasp or get a handle on it. So that's really what pushed me into this space was I realized what I didn't know. And I, believed that we were leaving money on the table out of our ignorance. And we knew that this was the direction we wanted to go in, which is kind of the applied research field, but we didn't know how to get there. So, you know, in order for any organization to really move forward, you got to have buy-in from the top. So being an executive in an organization, I had bought in, but needed to understand how to get there. And I started looking around at other uh, companies in my industry and when I looked at some of the bigger name top 100 government contracting firms, most of them were doing research on various levels. So for us to have long-term viability in this space, in my, in my mind, in my personal opinion, I believe it was something that we had to figure out. So that was kind of why, how I got here in terms of even being interested in the doctoral space, something I never thought that I would personally ever pursue. I remember graduating from the University of South Carolina, um, early 2000s. That kind of gives you some some uh, context, maybe how old I am. Um, but I remember graduating from Carolina, University of South Carolina, that is, early 2000s, saying to myself, I am never going back to college. Now, here I am, engineering degree, two master's degrees later, and, and an executive doctoral program. And we are truly limited by what we know that that is a limitation. Um, so either you have to learn it or you got to hire someone who, who does know it. But the problem that I had was I hired someone, but I wasn't able to ask the right questions. And that's a book I read a long time ago about asking the right questions. But sometimes you got to have context for how to even ask the right questions. I didn't have enough context to ask the right questions. And I think one of the biggest things you take away from a PhD program um, regardless of what your major is or what your discipline is, I think it's learning how to ask the right questions to get the right answers. You know, in quanti qualitative studies, uh, you know, it may be 
You may do a series of interviews to learn something. They call it a phenomenon to learn a new phenomenon that you didn't know. You may do focus groups. I personally um, subscribe to the focus groups because I can get a richer sample set to, to find questions that I'm trying to answer in my research. Whether that's Typically, the research that I do is around technology and what they call social technical systems, which is a combination of the social side, people, and the technical. So I really like doing stuff where it comes with innovation management, innovation strategy. That's kind of the area that I've found myself in. But but I digress. Um, so I kind of talked about why I pursued a doctorate, and it was to to learn how to do applied research and take advantage of some of the um, non-dilutive. <laughs> that's a big word. Non-dilutive, meaning uh, equity-preserving not equity dilution. If you take on some projects and um, you decide to go take on venture capital or angel capital, you're normally exchanging some level of uh, equity in exchange for money. And so if you're in the innovation space, you want to minimize the dilution of your equity position, at least for as long as you can. So you can maintain more of the, um, the financial benefit upon exit. Okay, so how do you evaluate schools which may be best for you? This is a great question. These are things that I learned along the way. I'm very happy with the institution that I'm at. It fit um, what you want to do. If this is something you think you're pursuing, first of all, I think the first thing you need to determine is whether you're going to do an online program. There's tons of them. Or if you're going to do a residency-based program where you actually show up on campus, engage with the professors to some degree on some semi-periodic fashion. You have to figure that out. Once you figure out what type of program you're going to pursue, online versus residency, then you take that information and you decide what are you going to pursue. And let's take it from a business or management perspective. Um, you want to find schools that align with your research interest. What does that mean? So like uh, a case, uh, I'm doing some things in the medical space. And so case Western has a huge um, emphasis in the healthcare space. There are about three hospitals in the local area. You got Cleveland clinic, you got university hospitals, you got Metro health. Um, and, and those are, three pretty substantial hospitals. I think the lowest one uh, in terms of revenue is Metro Health right at, you know, 900 and some odd million or a billion dollars, you know, based on the latest numbers. I think they're either at a billion or knocking on the door of a billion dollars. That's the smallest one of the three. Um, and they do a lot of collaboration with um, Case Western, Case Western Health Medical School. I say all that to say this, uh, you got to find a school that has, it's going to allow you to cultivate your research interest. Um, so Case Western, based on my research, did that. And then, of course, after you find a school that you are thinking about pursuing. Um, so, okay, Curtis, I'm thinking about an executive PhD. Let's just use my example for lack of, um, just for, to aid the conversation and to hopefully minimize confusion. You want to do research in the healthcare space. You say, okay, Kurt, I want to go to Case Western. All right, cool. The The very next thing you're going to go do is you're going to go to the website. All the stuff I'm saying is going to be pretty general when I, when I explain it. You're going to go to the website. You're going to try to understand the mission and the, the value proposition that that school offers. Um, you want to kind of figure out how they're ranked in the space. Um, and you want to try to, now this is hindsight telling you this, try to start looking at the faculty for the school that you want to go to and see who at that school may have a research interest similar to yours. So one of the things I'm studying is I'm looking at things in the, around, around the electronic health record. So there, there was tons of folks, not tons, there were several people um, at Case Western who had experience in and around that. Now, I didn't know this when I went there, what I'm telling you, but I want you to be more informed than I was. So what you want to try to identify before you pick a school, you've, you've number one, you've identified, I'm going to do an executive program 
I'm going to do residency-based versus online. All these are personal preferences. And so the next thing you want to do is you want to figure out, once you figure out what you're going to study, you start talking about doctoral studies. There's a research question that you need to ask. And you may not have it narrowed down, but it needs to be something that drives you that you want to learn more about of for whatever reason. I told you my reason was we wanted to commercialize technology and in the, in the healthcare space. And so when I started um, understanding that and I started interviewing, I found out, because I did not know this at the time, telling you kind of lessons learned, I found out that Case Western Reserve University, and it's called the Weatherhead School of Business. We call it Weatherhead for short, um, or Weatherhead School of Management, specifically I said business, but it's actually School of Management, WSOM. Um, I found that they had a huge healthcare emphasis. And I'll say this, when you start applying for schools, you know, your statement of purpose you got to write, whole application process you want to find a school that is a fit for you meaning um, not only do you want to go to that particular institution but they see value in having you and I'm, another aside in a lot of the executive doctoral programs they waive the gmat and gre requirements i took the gmat gre 2008 ish uh, when i was getting my mba at the citadel i get you have to take one um, but the thing, and I, and I do not like, again, I repeat, I do not like standardized tests. Me and standardized tests don't do well. Um, and normally my test scores are not a reflection on the standardized test of how well I perform academically. So another driver in me picking Case Western was they didn't require a GMAT score, which was a plus for me. And a lot of the executive doctoral programs and executive MBA programs, I've them in there as well, don't. Um, so, Yeah. So it didn't require a GMAT. They were very much in, interested in what I wanted to study. And my advisors, as I got into the program, helped me narrow down my interest into something small enough that I could get my arms around to write, to do research around. So something else to consider. So find a school. And if you find a school, f hopefully identify a professor or two who has published research around the area in which you want to get and what you want to do research around. Because what you're looking for is someone who's going to serve as an advisor. Um, they call a content advisor. Content advisors make sure that what you're writing about has relevance, and you have a methods advisor, and they'll walk you through this whole process. I didn't know these things that I'm telling you today. You have a methods advisor whose whole job is to make sure you're doing research correctly in terms of methodology. If you're doing qual, there's specific things you can do. And your school normally will has a preferred method. At Case Western, we do something called constructivist grounded theory. I won't get into what that is because that'll that'll be a whole that could be a whole podcast by itself. So my my methods advisor makes sure that my process, the methodology I'm following to create theory follows a structured process. And what you're researching is not as important as the methodology. So you know I'm I'm studying um, the healthcare field. I have other people in our program who's looking at venture capital and foreign direct investment. Some people are looking at human rights. Some people are looking at executive leadership and um, in integral issues. So you have the content advisors who has relevance in that field of study you're studying, and you have methods advisors, and the methods advisors to make sure your process is good, your content advisors to make sure that you are writing um, high-fidelity, content content rich information regarding your chosen subject matter okay i don't know if that helped to clarify so please leave some notes in the comments and let me know if this is value add and if i need to talk further about it in another podcast i will so you've identified the school you've identified um online versus residency you've identified me back up You've identified online programming versus residency-based. You probably found a few schools. I'm going to throw out a few for those. I know this is a management podcast, so I'm going to give you a few schools to consider. Now, do, most of these schools I'm going to give you, and I did not research them 100%, but here's some of the schools that I looked at before narrowing down where I went. You guys know I'm at Case Western. So Case Western is at the top of the list, and this is in no particular order. And they're at the Weatherhead School of Management. You got Benedictine University, you have Drexel, Georgia State University, Pepperdine, Temple University, and the University of Maryland. 
Now, all of these schools I just mentioned, Case, Benedictine, which I hope I said their name right, Drexel, Georgia State University, Pepperdine, Temple, and University of Maryland, or UM, um, they all have executive management or executive doctoral programs. Either D Most of these programs are DBAs. Now, one thing about Case Western I mentioned, one of the reasons why I picked them, they had a, a doctor of management, um, doctorate, a PhD add-on. If you want to do, I am planning on doing a PhD. Um, they've now changed to a DBA. So they're now doing a doctor of business administration. That changed earlier this year. So they were a doctor of management. Now they're a DBA program. I'm going to get my PhD. I'm not doing the DBA. Case gives you that option. Some schools don't. It's just a DBA or EDD. Case gave me the flexibility to do three years and get now a DBA slash DM, doctor of management, or stay another year and get the PhD. I'm doing the PhD option. Um, Georgia State, I know for a fact, has an executive DBA program. Um, so you just got to figure out what school is right for you. Call, you know, some of them will allow you to come in and do a, this was pre-COVID. Pre-COVID, you could call and they would let you normally show up and and kind of go through a, some lectures that day. So the way CASES program is, is structured, we do a class each day. Typically classes last from 8 to 5, 5. We're on campus, and we haven't been on campus since since March, by the way, so we've been virtual. Um, but we would have breakfast served for us from, say, um, starting at 7.15 to 8. They would give us a, a great meal, nice, fulfilling, balanced breakfast, kind of buffet style with a bunch of options. Um, they would have snacks, kind of like a lot of us have been to the conferences, some of the more professional conferences where they have, you know, um, the coffee stations and the snack areas. And if you've been to those, it's a very similar format in executive doctoral education. So they pretty much take very good care of you. And a lot of these educational programs are expensive. I'm not going <laughs> to, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. They are expensive. So you need to know that this is something that you really want to do. And I'm going to advise you that if this is something that you are considering, you need to kind of know, maybe not in specific detail, but to some level, how you're going to get a return back on your investment. Whether that's you're going to teach, whether you're going to consult, um, talk to some of the other senior professors at the uh, school that you choose and ask them how they're doing it. One of the things I was interested to find was that a lot of, how do I say this? A lot of scholars make money outside of the classroom, meaning they get their, they get their salary to teach um, at said university, and they do corporate training, or they may be a consultant to other businesses, and a lot of professors make more money. I can say a lot. Some professors make more money outside of their teaching profession because they're they're experts in their field. I know few who may, well, I know some. I want to make sure I say this correctly. I, I know some professors who make more money outside of the classroom than they've made in the classroom. We're talking, some of these are tenured professors. Tenured professors doing well. Um, I have a, I have their sal I know some of them salaries. I won't, of course, disclose that information here. But they're making six figures teaching, and some are, making they're doing well <laughs> i just want to make sure that i say this correctly now that's not all but many are doing well um yeah <laughs> i just want to make sure I, I just yeah i just want to make sure that i put it in context i know many that are doing well so you got to just figure out what it is that you're trying to do um, what is your end goal? Kind of think of the exit in mind. And it's okay that you might not know what the exit is when you first start, but you need to be figuring out how you're going to recoup this money that you're investing. Whether you're paying for it out of pocket or whether you're financing, you know, those are all personal decisions that you need to make. Um, do recognize that it will require a commitment of time. So if you can't figure out how to allocate that time, 
you may not want to consider that at this time, especially if you already got a full-time job um, and you're trying to do an executive doctoral program, you need to understand, you got to figure out how you're going to allocate an extra 20 hours a week to the requirements of the program. And that's reality. And that's probably an understatement. And then you have some semesters where um, the workload will be less or more than others. And that's going to probably depend on a professor and what particular class you're in and where you are in your program. But just be able to allocate at least 20 hours a week. Now, I used to hear this all the time in undergrad and graduate school. You know, for every hour you're in class, you need to dedicate three hours um, outside of class and doing your work. I never lived by that that doctrine. And so when I heard it when I was getting ready to get in, start my doctoral program, they said that, and I was like, yeah. I said to myself, I heard that before. But no, they, they <laughs> in this instance, they really mean it. They really mean it. I mean, you're going to find yourself doing a lot of reading. Now, I find the reading being very interest, interesting, but I am going to say when I first started having to read doctoral papers, um, you know, most of these are journal articles, I honestly thought I was slow. <laughs> and so what, what do I mean? Um, it would take me sometimes an hour or two to read a 20-page article. And, you know, no one, none of, none of my classmates talked about it earlier. We were all going through the same thing, but none of, no one wanted to appear to be slow <laughs> or not, not intellectually astute, whatever word you want to call it. And we all went through it. And now that we're, you know, second, getting ready to go into our third year soon, we talk about it. I mean, I'm, I remember taking a class with a professor called uh, Collective Action, and we were reading books like Exit, Voice, and Loyalty. And the reading would be so dense. They would take sometimes, I remember, it would be taking two and three concepts and fusing it into one sentence. This one sentence, would, which probably be four lines long, and it would talk about political theory, democracy, and... Um, econometrics, <laughs> all in one sentence. And so you would literally have to parse the sentence and roll it around in your mind and figure out what the author was trying to tell you. But what you'll understand is a lot of the uh, scholars in the 60s and 70s thought that their work was not scholarly if it wasn't dense. And they saw denseness being a badge of honor. So the more dense they could make their writings, they believe that there was a perception that they were they were smarter. That was just the reality of that, of that class. And a lot of the writings in the collective action space are very dense. And, but, you know, if I had to synopsize that whole class in one minute, it would basically be that collective action. Um, it's hard. And the more people involved in the collective action pursuit, meaning I'm trying to get a bunch of people to do something the more people involved in trying to herd those people toward a common goal you are disincentivized the collective if disincentivized to pursue a collective action that was that was wording the less people involved the easier it is as more people get involved the probability of achieving some collective output drastically decreases. And we went through tons of examples in that class. It was a great class and uh, we had a great professor, but the readings were actually quite dense. So the first year I felt like I just read, I read books, articles. Now as we're progressing, we're doing more, um, more of the research. We're doing more of the quantitative, which I just don't read map books, but, <laughs> but I do read the journal articles and, um, I follow the examples, but you'll find your ebb and flow. And what you'll find is you're going to have natural strengths and weaknesses and everyone has them. We're not different. And so you'll find the areas of which require more or less effort for you. And they're going to be different from your cohort, but I like the cohort based learning because it creates a peer group for you to, you know, to share ideas and, successes and struggles and you figure out kind of who is the leaders in certain areas in terms of ability and you lean on them and they may lean on you for something else. 
So I just like the cohort-based experience. Now, our cohort-based experience has been um, modified as a result of COVID because we can't get together. So I think uh, I seen a note the other day that says we're going to, the school is going to try to get us together as soon as April of 2021 based on the COVID-19 vaccine being released, but that's still to be determined. Um, so although I feel like Case Western has done a good job at trying to navigate the uncertainties of COVID, I do miss being in class. I do miss flying to um, Cleveland once a month, um, three days, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and the first residency of each semester is normally four days. So we have a Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And that Wednesday is typically for outbriefing. Um, so, you know, maybe the class before, the class after will kind of show the entire, um, all the current classes, first, second, third year, kind of what they worked on. So I find that to be kind of cool. It kind of gives you an idea of what the people behind you are working on and you can kind of reflect on maybe some of the challenges you were having at that time. The group ahead of you, you can kind of see what they're working on and you can kind of start developing an aperture for what that may look like. You'll hear the questions and the uh, scholars, of course, the professors are there and they're providing feedback. So it just creates a very rich experience for all parties involved. So let's see. I hope that helped because I've been getting questions about the PhD program. Um, I am seeing more and more PhDs these days. And again, you know, full disclosure, I never foresaw myself pursuing doctoral education. This all just happened. But I hope this helped. Um, I've been getting questions about doctoral pursuits um, over since, since I kind of talked about the PhD program in one of my earlier podcasts. So I want to kind of provide some context and uh, hopefully that was helpful. Um, a lot of doctoral students go work for corporations. Some teach. Uh, I think most don't, but some, some, some still do. Some of the people in my program are professors already, um, and they have their reasons for why they want to do this. But I will say this. This is something, if you do decide to pursue doctoral education, just know that you really got to want to do it. Um, because it is a lot of work, but I find the work very rewarding. So if you're a lifelong student, you like learning, you like kind of, you're kind of inquisitive. You want to know the reasons to why maybe something worth pursuing. But, um, as executives, we have to make sure we can carve out the time and it doesn't affect home life and, uh, work life negatively. Cause like, it, you will have to do some reallocating. I'm just going to be very honest. Um, you're going to have to do some reallocating. I sat my family down before I went. And we had, you know, a come to Jesus meeting, <laughs> for lack of a better term. And I had to make sure that my pa my family was going to give me permission to do this. And I knew it was going to be a commitment. That's one of the things the program kind of advised us to do. So if you decide to pursue it, you need to make sure that your children and your spouse or significant other, whatever your situation is, is going to be on board because they, you will have to probably sacrifice some time. Um, you're going to have to figure out, you know, maybe a new schedule. Some people prefer to do their work early in the morning. You know, they get up at 4 a.m. I don't do that. <laughs> but uh, some folks get up at 4 a.m. and they'll, they'll work on their stuff every day for two to four hours. Some people are night people. Some folks just work all week and dedicate their Saturday or Sunday to doing work all day. So you have to just find out what system is going to work for you based on based on you. I mean, you know when, you know how you best perform. Some of us, and I'm a night person, so I can stay up all night and still get up early in the morning. So I'm a night person. But you got to figure out what method is going to work best for you and govern yourself um, accordingly. I do advise anyone who wants to do this, I think you'll find a lot of reward in it. Um, you're going to learn new things. And I think the biggest takeaway that the program has provided me is the ability to ask deeper questions. Deeper questions to be more thoughtful to not jump to conclusions quickly. Um, as executives, we often have to make decisions with limited information, and we make those decisions with limited information to the best of our ability. Um, but in a PhD program, I think it forces you to become more thoughtful. And I think overall it makes you smarter in terms of exposing you to things that 
you may not have been exposed to. The problem that I often see is the academic world does a lot of great things, um, but we're never, it, it doesn't seem to get to the practical world. Now, unless you read things like MIT Sloan Magazine or maybe Booz Allen's um, Strategy Magazine or HBR, Harvard Business Review, you may get some practical application, but I realize that most people, a lot, of, a lot of people read the magazine, but I don't know how many business executives read it. So sometimes it's a lot of ideas floating around out there, but if you don't know how to access those ideas, you could be operating at a disadvantage and not know it. So I have found a lot of um, utility in the PhD program. It definitely has exposed me to new thoughts and ideas. And I would say that the scholarly community as a whole is pretty welcoming and pretty supportive. So if I don't know an answer, I know how to go and find who those experts are. And if I read their stuff and ha and reach out, and they'll normally respond back because everyone wants to share their research and their scholarship. Um, that's their commitment to the world. So I find the environment being very um, facilitating, uh, very welcoming, and eager to share. Just been my experience. Um, so I'm not going to belabor this podcast. I hope this was value added for you. Um, again, if it was valuable, please let me know. Leave a note in the comments. Um, you, as you guys know, I am on LinkedIn um, and several of the other social media platforms. So if you would like to connect with me, please don't hesitate to reach out. I do get inundated with requests. So please forgive me if it takes a little time to get back to you, but I promise that I will. I want to hear from you. I want to know what other subject material you would like me to discuss. Uh, my goal is to provide useful content to the executive world and the management community and business community at large. And so I like to hear, you know, what you like, what you dislike, and we'll see what we can do to better facilitate your needs. Well, I'm not going to belabor this guys. I've been talking now for 50, almost 51 minutes. Um, so, but I will like to wish you a happy holiday season. Um, hope you eat lots of Turkey this, this week and I hope you get an opportunity to spend time with friends and family. And I look forward to talking to you again next time. Have a great day. Guys. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the business theologist podcast. Please share, subscribe, and rate this podcast so others can find us too. If you would like to connect with me, please use the links in the show notes of this episode. Please feel free to connect with me on social media as well. I welcome the opportunity to connect and hear from you. Have a blessed week. Until next time.